Amen. God bless you as you give. Um, at this time, we're going to uh, invite Pastor Tony to come. Um, we are excited. She is uh, right in the middle of a prayer series on, uh, on prayer, a series on prayer, prayer life. How about that? Come it's a shocker. A it's a prayer series on prayer. <laughs> I know y'all weren't expecting that, were you? No. <laughs> well, welcome back. We're in week three of our series called Prayer Life. And um, how many of you have noticed a marked change in your prayer life just from the last two weeks? Raise your hands. I've gotten a lot of feedback and some cool testimonies of what God is doing in people's prayer lives. And that just makes me so happy that it's fruitful and he's using it. So tonight, um, we're going to go a little different direction, still talking about prayer. And I have actually never talked about this subject as particularly relating to prayer. But as I was praying about doing this series, I really felt very strongly to teach on covenant. And I kept, you know, arguing with the Lord because it wasn't in my original 12-week plan. Did I say 12 weeks? No, it's not going to be 12 weeks. It wasn't in my original 27-step plan on teaching on prayer. But... Um, <laughs> You know, one thing that he impressed in my heart was you take for granted what you know. And we're talking in this series of prayer life, we're talking about laying a foundation for a successful prayer life. And the first week we talked about the what's and the why's, what it is, why we need to pray. The second week, last week we talked about abiding and how that is an important layer of the foundation of having a successful prayer life. And we've talked that a successful prayer life is not measured in goosebumps. It's not about a feeling. It's not about how loud. It's not about how long. Success is, are you getting an answer to what you're asking God for? And we, there's a foundation. It's not a one, two, three formula. It's not a push this button, pull this lever, and out pops an answer to prayer every time. It's the same formula. But there is a foundation that needs to be laid so that when we pray, we can have confidence and faith and trust that he is going to do what he said he would do. Trust, faith, it's the fuel that causes prayer to work. Just like gas is the fuel that causes your car to work, trust fuels prayer. And so there's a foundation that needs to be laid to build that trust. And so we talked about last week that abiding was the first layer of that foundation. If you have missed either of the weeks, I, I don't know if they're on the VCC app, but they're on my podcast, Tea with Tony, and they're on my blog, Tea with Tony. So you can go on there and actually on the blog, posts that I put out every Thursday, it has the PowerPoints in them because somebody asked me to do that too. So if you want all that, it's available. So um, there's a twofold reason for teaching on prayer or for prayer in itself. And the first one is to fellowship. One aspect of prayer is strictly abiding. And we talked about that, that last week. That's where we get to know him. That's where trust is built. And then the second purpose of prayer is getting an answer. And I just want to kind of throw this out there to you as we build upon this foundation. And it's this thought that if we knew and really understood how much influence we have with the Father, we would spend way more time praying. 
And that's the purpose of the series is to, to bring some understanding, to stir up the awareness, to stir up the passion and the fire and help us to understand how much influence we really have with him. Because I think sometimes we have not because we, and we ask not because we don't think about it sometimes or doubt or question or have insecurities. I'm not good enough. Why would he answer my prayers? We're going to look at all that tonight. Um, we'll skip that. Okay. Covenant. We're going to skip ahead to the slide that says prayer originates with God. We're just going to skip all the review. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the CD. It was enlightening. But prayer originates with God. Psalm 27, 8 says, and it's one of my favorite verses. I like to think about it when I wake up in the morning. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. And so prayer, as we get into this prayer life and getting answers to our prayer, we need to remember that prayer always originates with him. He gives you a scripture, you have a need, but because you have a need, you go to the word and find a scripture on that need. He puts something in your heart. The next few weeks are going to be exciting. You don't want to miss them. We're going to talk about the word, the place of the word in prayer, and what our words have to do with prayer. We're going to talk about taking authority. We're going to talk about praying the word. We're going to talk about um, faith and the place of faith in prayer. It's going to be awesome. But as we get into receiving these answers to our prayers, I, I just want to forewarn you now because it's super duper easy for pride to enter in. Well, I prayed for that. Well, did you now? <laughs> and who gave you the faith to pray for that? And who initiated that prayer? And whose power moved in response to the prayer to actually bring it to pass? And if you look in Numbers, um, Moses, God told Moses to strike the rock to bring water, right? So he struck that rock, and out came water. And you can hop, skip, and jump a couple of chapters down the road, and they need water again. And God told him to speak to the rock, and what did Moses do? Because it's what he'd always done. It's what he did last time. He was relying on himself. I was so awesome, so I'm going to do that again. So we want to take note and keep our hearts right before God that it originates with him and it ends with him because we don't do anything to bring a prayer to pass. All we do is open our mouth and let it come out. <clears throat> so we want to kind of keep that in mind. But the first come to me that we're going to look at tonight starts in covenant. Now, we're separating kind of these teachings for teaching's sake, but they all intertwine together. Covenant and abiding and the prayer of faith and praying the word, there's all are going to combine together. So real quick, we're going to kind of review what covenant is, why we need a covenant, and what this has to do with prayer. The definition of a covenant is it's a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement it's a compact. It's a contract. In Bible days, it was considered an agreement that was sealed with blood. Some cinnamon, cinnamons, 
synonyms of the word <laughs> covenant. My mouth goes faster than my brain's. <laughs> um, agreement, commitment, warrant, pledge, promise, and bond. And all these words kind of have something in common. We're going to look about some facts about covenant. And I want you to be thinking about this as we go through the night. The covenant was cut and sealed with blood. When they cut a covenant in the Old Testament days, they would exchange personal effects. Remember Jonathan and David, when they did their covenant, they exchanged armor and weapons and stuff. They would exchange names. They would raise their right hand and speak terms of the covenant, the blessings and the curses. They made a scar or an incision that could be seen outwardly as a sign of the covenant. They ate a covenant meal and they planted a covenant tree. And we see through all of these Old Testament things that they did in covenant, you can see Jesus, can't you? He cut the covenant. He sealed it with his blood. He exchanged his personal effects with us. We took his name. He identified with us. He spoke terms and blessings. Scars. Doesn't he have scars that can be seen as a sign? We have the communion as our covenant meal. And don't you know we have a covenant tree? Thank God for our covenant tree. Now, some interesting facts about the covenant. There were different ways that they used to cut the covenant. And you will be so thankful by the time we're done tonight that we don't do this anymore. <laughs> but they really, really did this in the Old Testament. They would cut their arms and suck each other's blood out of their arms. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? They would cut an animal in half and walk between the parts, kind of that showed unity, as they walked between the parts and walked between the blood. They would cut themselves and let the blood drip into wine, and then they would drink it, equally as disgusting as the first one. They would cut their wrists and clasp hands with their wrists touching, showing the mingling of the blood and signifying unity. Who's glad? Just just say hallelujah that we don't have to cut a covenant anymore. <laughs> I love 2015. I love the time that I was born. I love it. Covenant was considered binding, serious, and unbreakable. In fact, if you broke the covenant, it was punishable by death. It demanded unswerving loyalty. It spoke of sacrificial love loyalty and faithfulness, and it was sacred. We don't count very much sacred anymore, but the covenant was sacred. It was entitled to reverence, entitled to respect. It was held sacred. You just didn't break it. What covenant means, and I love this, and think about this because we are in covenant with God. It means that all that he is and all that he has is ours. And all that I have and all that I am is his. The same covenant that provides everything for you requires everything from you.
I'm going to say that again. The same covenant that provides everything for you, it requires everything from you. And if you think of anything in our modern day world that <laughs> is a covenant, it's marriage. Marriage is not just a contract. It is not just a piece of paper that you sign when you say, I do, at the Justice of the Peace or in a church or in some pretty field somewhere. Marriage is a covenant before God. When I married Michael, everything that he had and everything that he was became mine. And vice versa. I tried to tell him that what's his is his and what's mine is mine and what's his is mine and it's all mine, but that didn't fly. So we went back to what covenant really is. <laughs> and in order for a marriage to work, it's got to go both ways. Everything that he is and has is mine. Everything that I have and is is his. I am not my own. He is not his own. He would lay down his life for me. I would lay down my life for him. Marriage is supposed to be a sacred covenant. Everything that I have and is, am, is his. There's a lot of people lately that want all the blessings of the covenant without all the responsibility that comes with covenant. But that's just like living together. <laughs> and we aren't just living together with God. We're in covenant. And there's a reason that we're in covenant, and we're going to look at that tonight. Why do we need covenant? Hebrews 9.22 says, under the law, it's almost the case that everything is purified in connection with the blood. Without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be forgiven. So we're going to talk about what happened to man as a result of the fall. And trust me, this is all vitally important to prayer life. What happened to man as a result of the fall? And we can read the, we're going to read bits and pieces of the story here in a minute, but it's found in Genesis 3, 1 through 24. We're not going to read the whole thing for time's sake. But when, when Eve took, took that apple, not even chocolate, ladies, it was apple. Seriously, not even a chocolate-covered apple. It was just fruit. <laughs> when she took that fruit and she ate, and she gave it to Adam and he ate, and they died, they died. They didn't die naturally. They died spiritually. They went from being alive unto God to being dead on the inside. Their spirit man was dead. So now instead of having a nature in the image and likeness of God, they had a nature that was in the image and likeness of sin. Instead of being God conscious, they were sin conscious. And instead of, or they turned from God being their Lord to the devil being their Lord, to sin being their Lord, to their flesh being their Lord, what ruled over them. They were eternally separated from God. Approach to God was lost. Fellowship with God was lost. Intimacy with God was lost. And Adam passed that sin nature to every man that would ever be born. We didn't need a Savior because of what we did. We did what we did because of our sin nature. We didn't just need a Savior because we sinned. We sinned because we had a sin nature. So he had to take care of the sin 
nature. And when man fell, all of that was immediately lost. And that's when the curse came into the earth. It's when in Genesis 3 when he said, you know, women, you're going to be cursed with pain and childbirth. You know, I'm going to have some words with Eve <laughs> when we get to heaven. That was not very nice of her to do that to me. But, <laughs> but all those things happened to man because of the fall, because sin entered in. Sin interrupts intimacy. It interrupts approach to God. It interrupts fellowship with God. All of those things were lost. And I'm just going to read a few verses. I don't even think I put them in there. I'm so sorry, Connie. But um, Genesis 3, verses 7 and 9, it says, When they ate, at that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. You know, that was the very first camouflage. He didn't even listen. <laughs> He's running out. The very first camouflage, they were trying. They realized, hey, we need to hide. So they sewed fig leaves together. You ever wonder what they sewed them together with? Like, did they have thread and a needle? How did that work? My mind goes in interesting directions when I study the Bible. But they tried to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? See, camouflage, it worked. God couldn't even find him. Their fig leaf covering, though, it was not enough to cover their sin. Because we read later in the chapter that God, he slayed, slain, slew, killed an animal and covered them with the, the fur covering of the animal. Verse 13 said, Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? God's heart was grieved. Because we're going to look here in a minute. There were some things that happened to God when man fell. It had an impact on him. Our sin doesn't just impact us. It impacts him. He wasn't yelling at Eve. He was grieved. My goodness, what have you done? And then you skip down. You know, Eve talked to him. You know, it was the serpent. And then, you know, he asked Adam, what have you done? And Adam said, it was that woman that you gave me. But down in Genesis 3.15, when he's talking about Jesus now, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Remember it, when man fell, one of the things that happened was that we went from God being Lord to sin being Lord. And that phrase, crush your head, means break your lordship. That's good news. When he was prophesying about Jesus, he said, he's going to crush your head. He is going to break your lordship over man. When Jesus cut the covenant, he broke the lordship of Satan, of sin, of all of that. Broke it right off of us and gave us the power to rise above it. Just look for a minute what happened to God as a result of the fall. I think the biggest thing was he lost fellowship with his creation. He created us to fellowship with him. That was the whole point. And he was grieved that he lost fellowship with his creation. 
Why? Because sin awoke in God the need for justice because his holiness was violated. And in Andrew Murray's book, The Power of the Blood of Christ, has anybody read that? Excellent book on the blood of Jesus. He had this quote. It said, sin is determined opposition to a holy God. It not only can but must awaken his wrath. While it was God's desire to continue in love and friendship with man, sin had compelled him to become an opponent. Although the love of God toward man remained unchanged, sin made it impossible for him to allow man to have fellowship with himself. It has compelled him to pour out upon man his wrath instead of his love. The change that sin caused in his relationship to man is enormous. God was affected. God was grieved. Because God is a God of love. He didn't want to pour out wrath on man. He didn't want to dole out consequences to Adam and to Eve. But his holiness was violated. And he is bound by his word. He is bound by his justice. He is bound by his holiness. He cannot violate that. And so sin caused that wrath to rise up, yet the love of God, he wanted to pour it out. So what do you do? God cannot exercise his love at the expense of judgment and at the expense of justice. Jesus, he had to have a sacrifice for us, and that was Jesus. He wanted to pour out his love, but his holiness was violated, so that had to be taken care of. <clears throat> love and justice can dwell in the same person. Love and judgment can dwell in the same person. Look at any parent. I love my kids, but when they mess up, there's a consequence. Not because I'm mad at them, not because I'm mean, not because I'm an ogre, because I love them. You've got to have a consequence so that they can come up and do better the next time. Have you ever seen kids without consequences? That just speaks for itself. Genesis 3, 22 through 24 says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the end of the whole section of the fall. God kicked him out of the garden. He did not want them touching that tree of life and living in that state forever. That would have messed it all up. So was it meanness that blocked the way, that kicked them out of paradise, or was it love? You know, some people have this conception that Old Testament mean, New Testament love. Old Testament law, New Testament grace. But the love of God and the grace of God was all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament. In fact, in John 1.16, when it says, from his fullness we've been given grace for grace, that means we've been given grace in place of grace. 
And the next verse refers to, continuing on from 16, the law. Think about that for a second. How many of you ever thought about the word grace when you think about the word law? But the, John referred to the law as grace, but Jesus is a higher fulfillment of grace. The law was to lead us to show us that we needed Jesus. So it was love that kept them out of the garden. The sacrifices in the Old Covenant were in the law, there's the sacrificial law, and there's different sections of the law. So Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law. And so he, in the, the Old Testament blood, covered the sins of the Israelites. Jesus eradicated our sin nature. So there's a difference. But in the Old Covenant, the sacrifices, there were 1,273 public sacrifices a year, minimum. They did one in the morning, they did one in the evening, they did one the first day of the month, and they had them during the special feasts. And then on top of that, there were the personal sacrifices, the sin offerings, the wave offerings, all those offerings. Every time you missed it, a sin offering. How many <laughs> hmm, pigeons do I need today? <laughs> I'm going back to the priest, going back to the priest. Imagine the stench. I mean, ew, that's just blood and animals. And if I had a gag reflex, I would just, you want to teach on it, honey? <laughs> but the, the, the blood of the sacrifices in the old covenant covered. It was enough so that he could have a covenant people so that Jesus could come. It was getting us through to Jesus. The old text Old Testament sacrifices never took care of the sin problem. It just covered it. It never restored approach. It never really restored that intimacy. There was one person that could go into the Holy of Holies every year. One. And he went one time. And there was quite the routine to get in there. He had to wash by this and go by this. And from the outer court to the inner court to the holy place to the most holy place. And even then, <clears throat> his robe had bells on the bottom. You know why? Because if he messed up in there, <coughs> he's goner. And they, the <laughs> tradition said they tied a rope to his foot because if they stopped hearing the bells, they'd have to pull him out. Nobody else could go in there. How are you going to go in and get him? You'd be a goner because of the holy presence of God. Sin violates that holiness, and whew, when Uriah touched the ark, that's not what God wanted to do. That's what he had to do because he cannot violate his holiness for anybody or anything. But he wanted to love his people. Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hallelujah. Let's just take a minute and shout. Hallelujah. Oh, we're so thankful for the blood. 
Because without the shedding of blood, there's what? No remission of sin. Once for all, Jesus took that blood to the mercy seat in heaven, and he turned a throne of judgment into a throne of mercy. He turned a throne of judgment into the throne of grace. We need covenant. In covenant, Jesus became our atonement. And please understand, this is an overview. We could teach for 10 weeks on covenant and never get to the end, right? So if this is sparking an interest in you, I can give you the names of some books that will really be interested to, to you. But atonement is reparation for a wrong. And in 1 John 2, 2, it talks about how Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. He fixed our wrong. In covenant, when Jesus cut that covenant on the cross, he provided forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That word forgive means to let the offense go as though it had never been committed. So he made up for our wrong. And because of his blood, when we confess our sin, when we repent, then God lets it go as though it had never been committed. And he became, Alex was looking at my notes. He goes, what is propitiation? I go, honey, it's propitiation. He goes, whatever. What is that? He became our propitiation. And what that means is that he turned away God's wrath by satisfying his violated justice. So the holiness of God was violated in the fall. And when Jesus hung on that crust for us by his blood, he turned away God's wrath and satisfied his violated justice once for all. Hallelujah. And in covenant, approach and fellowship and intimacy were restored. Amen. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. What does that sound like? Sound like abiding to you? You have to know that you have approach. You have to know that it's okay for you to approach. To have confidence to enter the most holy place. The place where only one person could go once a year. And not even for fellowship, just to make atonement. He wasn't even in there to get a word. He was in there to cover but we have intimacy and approach and fellowship restored to us because of what Jesus did. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure 
water. There's nothing that will keep you out of the presence of God faster than a guilty conscience. Nothing. If you feel guilty, you're not going to approach. How many of you have had kids who have done wrong and they go hiding? Don't come run into your lap when you call. They're hiding in the closet because they know they did wrong because there's a guilty conscience. But the blood is there to cleanse our conscience because of covenant. Amen. Sin in the garden removed approach to God, and the covenant sealed in Jesus' blood restored approach. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We have to be able to approach him in full confidence to be able to pray. The blood didn't leave us in our sin. The blood restored approach. The blood didn't leave us at the cross, although we need the cross. Without that cross, there was no cutting of the covenant, but it didn't leave us there. The blood took us through the cross back to the throne into the most holy place which is why we can abide in him. That's why we can abide in the vine. That's why we can ask whatever we will, and it will be done for us because we have confidence before him because our sin problem was taken care of. Jesus gave us access only the high priest had only once a year. Understanding the covenant is key. This layer of the foundation is key as we move forward. When we use our authority, the authority that Jesus gave us, we have to know that we can. We have to know that we have confidence before God to be able to speak his word and to glare and to command evil spirits to go and to command sickness to go and know that it's going to listen to us. We have to have confidence before God to be able to do that. Knowing and understanding covenant is crucial. It's vital to your prayer life being successful. You have to have confidence before God. It gets rid of all those insecurities. Well, I missed it. Well, guess what? The blood covers it. Well, I, you know, I really just don't feel worthy. Well, too bad for you because the blood makes you worthy. So if you're sitting, have you ever been getting ready to go into praise and worship or it just starts and you're, Pastor Michael's singing his old happy song, oh, happy day. Do I look like him? No, (laughs) not even close. Jumping around up there, getting us into the presence of God, getting us into worship. And then you remember something that you did. Anybody? And then your heart condemns you. And then you start to back off from the presence of God. Can I tell you something? That's not the devil even sometimes trying to remind you of something. Sometimes when you start to come into the outer courts, if you do a study on the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's fascinating. They would come in by the outer courts and they would wash in the labor. Sometimes those things come up because sin can't stand in the presence of God. It comes up so that you can wash it off. Oh, Father, forgive me but don't let it hold you back. Don't you dare let it hold you back. Because the minute you say, Father, forgive me, he lets it go as if it had never happened. Why? Because Jesus satisfied his violated holiness for you. So instead of backing off and backing away, you can say, oh, Father, forgive me. 
that easy and enter right back in and go deeper and deeper and deeper than you've ever had before. There's nothing, nothing like the intimacy that comes after repentance. Nothing. When we correct our kids, they don't run away from us. We correct them in love. And then there's the hugs and the intimacy that's restored. Sin does not kick you out of the family, but it definitely destroys intimacy. There is no intimacy with sin. But once you get rid of the sin, then intimacy is immediately restored. Immediately restored. Your approach is restored. You could turn around and command sickness to go, and it would have to listen to you. Why? Because of how good you are? No, because of how good he made you. Because he made you righteous. He made you holy. He cut that covenant for you. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Tying it into prayer to understand the covenant, the confidence of approach that we have before him. Amen. He is faithful. He is faithful. So uh, we just have a couple minutes tonight, but I wondered if we could just sing that I just want to be where you are. Just take a minute and sing this chorus again. I loved it when he was singing that earlier because (laughs) that's the whole purpose of covenant was to restore approach, to restore intimacy, to restore that fellowship. So we're going to just stand for a minute. We're going to sing this chorus a couple times. And if there is anything standing in the way there, Just wash it off and enter in. Amen. Nothing. 
because of what your blood has done in our behalf. And I pray that this week that this revelation will sink in. (laughs) Sink in deep into our hearts. And Father, that this week with this revelation that we will abide more intimately in your presence than ever before. Father, let the awareness of the magnitude of what you've done for us sink in. In Jesus' name. You know, there's just something about having a continual awareness of the presence of God. And because of the blood, we can have that. There's no guilt, no shame anymore. Thankful for the blood. You know, when Jesus approached the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, Father, I thank you that you hear me always. And what that hear me always means that, Father, I thank you that I am always in the audience of you. Because of the covenant that he cut for us, we are always in the audience of him. Father, let that awareness just sink into our hearts and our minds this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, you're dismissed next week. Words, faith, and the power of our words. Amen.